0: You are listening to a message from Adam Reardon at Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois. At Redemption Church, we are all about introducing people into a growing relationship with Jesus. If you would like more information, check us out online at redemption.cc. Now stay tuned for today's message. Uh, hey, I am so glad that you are all here this morning because we are beginning together uh, a brand new series at Redemption Church called Like a Good Neighbor. Uh, we're going to spend the, the next few weeks uh, really talking about what it means to be a good neighbor. Now, uh, the reason we're going to spend time talking about this is because of the art of neighboring or being a neighbor or the reality is is the people you live by directly impact your life and my life. In fact, I think it's kind of interesting that uh, when a big nationwide insurance company tried to, to express what their values were, or what the relationship would look like between them and their clients they chose, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So I'd like to thank our sponsor this month. No, I'm joking. We don't have any sponsors. But think about it. Uh, A a big company said, hey, what would it look like? Because no one gets excited about insurance. Nobody loves it when your insurance guy calls you. But State Farm said, hey, we want people to think of us like a good neighbor. And I think that's important, because here's the reality. Every single one of us, my guess would be, is we all know the effects of a bad neighbor. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but have you ever lived by or had a bad neighbor? Uh, Maybe a better question is, have you ever been accused of being a bad neighbor? But I won't have you raise your hands for that one. Over the course of my life, I've had some bad neighbors, and I may have even been a bad neighbor at one point, and so... I took a couple of my worst neighbors and uh, made them into illustrations and changed their names uh, to protect the innocent. Because, come on, the people you live by directly affect your life. And if you have a bad neighbor, it negatively affects your day-to-day living. So I think of a couple of bad neighbors like Grumpy Greg. you ever met Grumpy Greg before? Uh, Grumpy Greg's the guy that's always mad about something. And the reality is that you do nothing right, according to... To Grumpy Greg, so you mow your yard wrong, or you at least mow at the wrong time of the day. Uh, You go too fast in the neighborhood, even though you're under the speed limit. Uh, Grumpy Greg's mad when you get too close to his property or his yard, and he definitely doesn't like it when your kids go near his property or his yard. That's Grumpy Greg. Uh, Have you ever met uh, this person before, Nosy Nancy? You ever had a Nosy Nancy as a neighbor? Nosy Nancy likes to know everybody's business but doesn't share any of her own. In fact, uh, you normally don't see Nosy Nancy because Nosy Nancy stands at her window like this with the blinds open, right? That's Nosy Nancy. She knows what's going on in the neighborhood. If you have Nosy Nancy in your neighborhood, you don't even need a neighborhood watch because she is the neighborhood watch. She knows everybody's business and if you catch her outside, she's happy to share everybody's business with you. Just be careful. The lady that shares everybody's business with you will share your business with everybody. That's nosy Nancy. Uh, My personal favorite is what's yours is mine, Walter, right? Uh, What's yours is mine, Walter. He's the neighbor that thinks everything you own is also his. So he is quick to borrow your stuff, but very slow to return your stuff to you. In fact, Walter, if he gets your stuff for long enough, just now thinks it's his stuff. He's the guy that when you walk up to his garage and say, hey, can I get my chainsaw back? He points at your chainsaw and goes, no, I'm pretty sure that's my chainsaw. It's been here for a while. That's Walter. And last but not least, one of my all-time favorite worst neighbors is who I call Animal Lover Ann. Animal Lover Ann has very wild extremes. Like, she doesn't have one cat. She has cats, right? Or she doesn't have one dog. She has dogs. Animal Lover Ann goes so far, she doesn't just feed her animals. She likes to feed wildlife like raccoons and possums and whatever else would come eat her food. And so animal lover Anne loves animals so much that she thinks you should love her animals the same way she does. So the dogs barking all hours of the day and night shouldn't be a problem to you. And it definitely shouldn't be a problem if her cats or her dogs come and use your flower garden as a bathroom because after all, it's their territory, right? We live in their domain. But the reality is, is every single one of us have experienced the effects Of a bad neighbor. And we all know that a bad neighbor can really affect our day-to-day life. Now, I want you to think about that for just a second, uh, because we know the effects of a bad neighbor, but at the same time, we tend to underestimate the power of a good neighbor. And I want you to think about this for just a second, because if a bad neighbor can really negatively affect your life, how much more could a good neighbor positively affect your life. And so we we tend to think about the bad neighbors, but we tend to forget about the power of having a good neighbor or forget about the power of being a good neighbor. Now you might ask yourself, why in the world would we take some time to talk about being a neighbor? Why is this something that we would talk about as a church? And the reality is it's because it's something that Jesus commanded us to do. In fact, maybe even more important than that, that Jesus, when asked a really important question, brings up his answer to the question is neighboring. Let's take a look at it. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. Now, here's the context. The Pharisees, the religious folks, are trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get him to mess up. They're trying to catch him. Uh, giving a wrong answer or in a lie. And they've even brought in like professionals. They've brought in lawyers to ask Jesus questions. But the problem is Jesus is Jesus. Jesus is the unique son of God. He is the word of God. He is the bread of life, the living water. That when Jesus speaks, it's the very word of God. So they can't trick him. They can't trap him. And they're frustrated. So they think they've got the hit the home run questions. They think they've got the one, that there's no way he could answer this question the right way. And so that's the context of the scripture. So it says, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. This is the one that they think is the one. He can't answer this one. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, let's pause on this for just a second, because here's, here's their question. Jesus, if you had to take the whole Old Testament, Jesus, if you took the entire Old Covenant, Jesus, if you were going to take all of the commands of God and tell us which one is the most important, what would it be? And these guys are just waiting, because they think this is an impossible question. Now, sometimes because we get so familiar with the Bible, we tend to look at scriptures like these and we kind of blow by them too fast. So I want you to think about something for a second. Jesus could have chosen not to answer this question. Think about that for a second. When they said, What's the most important commandment of the whole Old Covenant, of the whole Old Testament, Jesus, if you had to reduce it down to one, what would it be? Jesus could have said, Hey, guys, you can't do it. And if Jesus said that, he would have been right. But Jesus says, hey, I can do it. Jesus says, listen, I, I can take all of the Old Testament. Now, don't miss this. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. Jesus is going, hey, all the, all the commandments, all the promises, all the things God's required of you, Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. And so as the fulfillment of all those things, Jesus answers the question." Verse 37, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. Jesus goes, hey, you want to reduce it all into one thing? Here's the thing. I want you to passionately love the God who loves you. And see, for us on this side of the cross, that I think that tends to be easy to do. In the sense, if you go, I can love a God who has forgiven me, I can love a God who sent his Son, who died on the cross in my place, absorbed the wrath that I deserve, so that I can have forgiveness and hope and life. I can love a God that blesses me, that God promises every single one of us the hope of an inheritance, the hope of eternity, the hope of his presence, that he is always with us no matter where we go or what we go through. He goes, I want you to love God passionately. That God loves you with a ferocious, passionate love. And you know what? You should love him back. That would be the first and greatest command, that you would love the God who loved you first. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and the second is, like it. you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets now think about this for a second jesus answers the question and he goes you want me to answer the question i can answer the question he goes all of the old testament all of the promises all of the covenants all of the commandments can be boiled down to two things I want you to passionately love the God who first loved you. And your love of God is most expressed in the way you love people. So Jesus goes, you want me to sum it all down? I want you to love God. And I want you to love your neighbor. On this, all of the law and all of the prophets, they hang on that very thing. I don't miss this for a second. Because when Jesus gave this to us, He wasn't thinking, hey, crochet this and put this on your wall. He wasn't like, this will be a great bumper sticker. You know, love God, love people. Love God, love your neighbor. When Jesus gave this to them, he's going, if you really want to know the heart of the Father, if you really want to know how all of this is fulfilled and what all the law and all the prophets were leading to, is that because of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection we could be fully loved, fully accepted, fully forgiven, adopted by God. That we could be in a relationship where we could know as much as humanly possible how much God loves us, and it wouldn't be just that we know it, it would be that we experience it. That we would experience the love of the Father in our lives through Jesus the Son empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, you know what people who are loved by God look like? People who are loved by God love other people, that it's kind of like this cycle that God loves us and we are so fulfilled, we are so satisfied, we're so empowered by his love that we would just be lovers of other people because God loves us so much that we would be lovers of other people. John in First John, I believe it is, says it this way, that no one has seen the love of God. No one has seen God, but when we love other people, people see God that there's something about the way that God loves us translates into us loving other people, which actually shows them the love of God. Which I think leads us to a really interesting question, and here it is. The interesting question is then, who's my neighbor? Like if Jesus says all of the Old Testament, all the covenants, all the prophets, it all boils down to loving God who first loved us and loving our neighbor, then we have to ask the question, well, who's my neighbor. Now here's what's kind of happened with this, and I think this is why this is a powerful question. At one point, Jesus is asked the question, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells a parable. It's a story that he made up to made a point. And in the parable, Jesus says there's a man who was robbed, mugged, stripped half naked, and left for dead. And all these different people pass him by and avoid this man. And then finally, one man sees him, cares for him, puts him on the back of his animal, leads him to an inn, and pays for his recovery, how much it costs. And at the end of the story, Jesus says, "In, in this story, which man was the neighbor? And they say, well, the man that helped him. And you see, the big graduate level answer to the question of who is my neighbor, if you were going to say, well, everyone's my neighbor. It's the people I live next to. It's the people I work with. It's the people I go to church with. It's the people I come to contact with. it's e- Even the people that I've never met yet, everyone is my neighbor. You would be 100% correct. But here's the thing. I have this sneaking suspicion. That because we've labeled everyone as our neighbor, we actually treat no one like our neighbor. And see, what Jesus was addressing is in his time, people lived by and with people who looked like them, thought like them, and believed like them. See, the power of that parable was the fact that the Samaritan, the person that, when Jesus would have listed his name, they would have thought, well, that guy's probably gonna kick him and rob him again. That he's the guy that stops and helps him. What Jesus' point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is, is your neighbor isn't people who look like you, think like you, and believe like you. Because in Jesus' time, who you were and what you believed determined your zip code. And even today, if you were to go to Israel, Israel is broken into districts, and the districts are defined by who you are, who your family is, and what you believe. Now that's different than you and I. Like none of you moved to where you lived because everybody on that street thought like you, believed like you, and looked like you. Like that wasn't your requirement. Like when we bought our house... We didn't go down the street, door to door, go, can you tell me what you think? Can you tell me what kind of education do you have? And are you a Bears fan or a Packers fan? Are you a dog or a cat person? Like, that's not how we made the determination to live where we live. Back then, it was. In fact, most times, when a child would grow up and get married, they would just add a room onto the family's house. And so you could have generations of family that became neighborhoods. So what if we kind of scaled this back for just a second? Since our zip code or because our address isn't defined by who our family is, what we think, and what we believe, the reality is is we are surrounded by people who don't look like us, who don't think like us, and who don't believe like us. So what if we took the simplest definition of neighbor, and what if we said, my neighbor is the people who live near me? Like, what if we define neighbor instead of this big, grandioso everyone? What if we just said, hey, for a real practical, real relevant, I want to leave here and do something. What if we said the person that Jesus is talking about when he says love God and love your neighbor is the people that live around you? What if we began to focus on the fact that God has placed us where we live for a purpose? In fact, one of the things I want you to hear this morning, because I think it's true according to the scripture, is you live where you live for the glory and the purpose of God. You live where you live for the purpose and the glory of God. Now this is interesting, because when you were picking a place to live, you probably had some criteria that you were looking through. Like probably first and foremost, you thought, do I like the place or do I like the property? That was probably a big criteria. No one was really excited to buy a place they hated, right? So you probably went through the place and you went, hey, it has, it has about the right number of bedrooms, has the right number of bathrooms, we, we kind of like the yard, we kind of like the location. So usually what happens is when, when we go house shopping, right, you find a place and you go, I really like this place. Or maybe you were looking for a farm and you said, hey, I really like the property. Like, hey, this is where we want to be. So that's kind of our criteria is, hey, do I like the home or do I like the place or do I like the property? And then our second criteria is usually can I afford it? Because there's all kinds of places that I love that I simply can't afford, right? So the next criteria we usually think about is can I afford it? Maybe the better question is, can I get a mortgage for it and pay it? Like the the, both of those things, like don't want to live there for a year and then get kicked out because I can't pay it. So then there's this price point where we go, hey, well I want this much, or I want that much, or I kind of want, but here's what I can really afford. And then lastly, it comes down to proximity. We usually try to find places that we live in based on the idea of is it near where I work? Or is it near loved ones? Or is it near a school district that I I want my kids to be in? that we, We normally go through that criteria. Now, there may be more, there may be less, but the reality is we all have a criteria. We all have kind of a grid that we ran through that led us to live where we live. But what if that actually had nothing to do with where you live, where you live? What if the price, the place, and the proximity actually had very little to do with you living where you live today? Because here's this interesting verse that kind of picks at me in my heart and my soul. It's Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And it says, And he, now he would be God, and he made from one man every nation of mankind, To live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. I think quite simply, this is what this means. God picked when you lived, and God picked where you lived. Like The the reason that none of us lived in the dark ages is because that wasn't God's determined time for us. Which I'm slightly thankful for. Like the the reason that none of us were cowboys back in the day is because God didn't want us there in that time or that place. The reason you're here today in 2017, the reason you live where you live is because God actually determined that he wanted you here today. That you were created for a time, a place, and a purpose. And that God has strategically placed you where you are for his glory and for his purposes. Now, now this is really fascinating because let, let's just chat about this for, for just a second. That means that as we look at the stuff that's going on in the world today, like, uh, let's, let's just be, let's just like agree, okay, let, let's just be real, Like, politically, pretty interesting time to live in, isn't it? Kind of weird. Lots of weird stuff going on. To the point that, like, we live in a time and a culture where you don't even know if you can really read the news, right? Or be told the truth. Kind of a weird time to live. Uh, The reality is, if you haven't checked the news this week, threat of nuclear war, right? I mean, there's, like, you know, may or may not be some nukes being shot off. Who knows? You know, I mean, kind of an interesting thing. Uh, Also, you know, just over the weekend, In Virginia, right? A bunch of white nationalists, college kids, go buy Starbucks and tiki torches and decide to go boycott. Now, like, here's what we would call that. That's just called racism. At the end of the day, it's hatred, bigotry, wickedness, and evil. Okay, so let's just call that what it is. And, like, I think if they want to be taken seriously, at least get rid of the tiki torches, but it's evil. And there's absolutely no room for that kind of hatred and racism in the heart of God's people? None. And we as people have to be willing to say that. Like, we as people have to be willing to talk about it and take a stand. And you go, why am I like, hey man, this is church, give me a little bit of hope. Like, why are you bringing up all the bad stuff? Because here's what I want you to think about. I want, I want this to bother you. I want, I want this to be in your heart and your mind just long enough for it to do something. I want it to marinate. Because if we take Acts 17.26 seriously, what it means is, God has chosen you to live during this time for a specific purpose. And the purpose is His purposes in His glory. It means that God has you where you are as his living representatives. That God has placed you where you are because people need to know that there's hope and you are ambassadors of that hope. That God has you where you are during this time because there's people who need to know what he's really like and he has placed you where you are so that you, like a royal priest, can tell people what God is really like and you tell them by your love, your words, your actions. That there's people near you who need to know how Jesus loves them and has forgiven them, and he sent you to do that. That the reason you and I live in this really strange time is because God has appointed it. So I want you to think of it this way it's not that we're victims of time and culture, because that's kind of what we tend to do. We kind of tend to be like, hey, it's time to build the bunker, at least put up a white picket fence. Like, hey, the world's really weird. What are we going to do? Let's retreat. And No, that's, that's not the answer. But God has appointed for you and for me to live in this time, in this place, for his purposes and for his glory. See, one of the things that every single one of us need to get a bigger, clearer picture on is our identity of who we are in Christ. That just because we're used to living one way doesn't mean that that's what God wants for us. It just means that that's what we're used to. But I believe according to the scriptures that God has more for us, that he desires more for us, that God has big hopes and big dreams for us, that God sends us to the places we are to represent him, his love, his hope, his glory, his eternalness everywhere we go. And you go, well, where do you get that idea? Well, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And this is Peter talking about people who have been saved by Jesus. And he says, but you are a chosen race. That means we're citizens of heaven, like Pastor Tim talked about last week. While we live here and we have driver's license here and we vote here, the reality is that we are citizens of heaven and that we are strangers and aliens in this world longing for our homecoming. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that means you belong to him and he delights in you, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Don't miss this. You live where you live because God has put you there to push back the darkness. You are the lighthouse on your street. You are the lighthouse in your neighborhood. You are the lighthouse in that farming community. You are that lighthouse in that apartment complex. You are the lighthouse in that trailer community you live in. You are that lighthouse on that college campus you live in. The reason you live where you live is because God has put you there to push back the darkness and proclaim the excellencies of him who has saved you. And he has given you his Holy Spirit and changed you so that you could be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who belong to him and can never be snatched out of his hand. That you don't live where you live because the house was right, the price were right, or it was a great location. I believe that every single one of us lives where we live because God put us there for his purpose and his glory. So at the end of the day, it means that not only was Jesus 100% right when he said what he said, it also means that he had some plans for us it means that every single one of us has an assignment in our homes, an assignment in our neighborhoods, assignment in our farming community, an assignment in that complex, an assignment in that building, that we're not just there to live, but we're there to live for his glory and his purposes. What means that Jesus was an absolute genius when he said, hey, just love your neighbor. Hey, if you just love the people that live around you, it would change the world. Like, if you would not be a bad neighbor, but rather if you'd be a good neighbor, that we would actually see lives changed by Jesus. That hope would spread and become contagious. That darkness would be pushed back. That the enemy would get pushed back, and the kingdom of God would advance forward just by you and I loving our neighbor. So here's the thing. We're not going to handle this all this week. I would invite you to to make sure you're here for the next few weeks as we really discover what it means to be a good neighbor. But here's what I want to do. I want to give us some action items. We don't do this often at Redemption Church, but I'm giving you homework, okay? Uh, you have some homework as you leave here today because James says, I want you to be hearers and doers. And so the best way I could figure out how to do that this week is to give us some action items, which are homework, and I even gave you a really fancy magnet to help you accomplish that. So this would be the point that I want you to get this out. Mine's stuck to the stand, but I want you to hold this for a second because what I want to do is give you three Ds to becoming a good neighbor. Okay, so here's the three D's to becoming a good neighbor. The first one is this, develop friendships. Develop friendships. You want to be a good neighbor? Learn to develop friendships. And one of the things we gave you was this magnet. And now I know, listen, I know for some of you, this doesn't look like where you live. Okay, I know for some of you, your house is in the middle. It's kind of like bingo. You get a free one. Okay, this one you're already good on. I know for some of you, there's like 20 acres between you and the next house. So you just imagine those acres between there, okay? Uh, for some of you, you're thinking, hey, that, that one house is way closer than that little inch. I mean, we, we kind of touch our, our garages or something. Here's what one I want you to think of. If this is you, and if your neighbor is the people who live around you, could you put names on all these houses right now? Do you know their names? I'll just be honest with you. I couldn't do it. I know some but I don't know all. So I'm admitting to you that I'm not a perfect neighbor and that God's doing some work in my own heart and the heart of my family because this is something that we're committed to. So here's, here's the thing. Do you know the names of your neighbors? If you're like me and you go, no, then here's, here's your assignment. Learn their names. Learn their names. I once heard somebody say that the sweetest sound to someone's ears is another person saying their name that we love it when people know us by name. Okay, see, we, we live in a culture and a time where we can get away without knowing people's names. We can say, hey, dude, what's up, bro? Hi, neighbor. What's up, sister from another mister? Right? Like You can just never call people their names, but there's something significant when somebody says, I know you, and I know you by name. Now, here, Here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to go door to door with this magnet and be like, my church wants me to know your name, so if you could just tell me your name, it's like, bingo, I'd like to put my, your name on there. I don't want you to do that. I think that would be offensive. That's why we didn't put our church name on here in case any of you did that. Like that wasn't our church. I don't know what you're talking about. That person sounds crazy. Um, here would be my suggestion to you. Put this up on your refrigerator because we all visit the fridge, okay? I'd tell you to put it on your TV, but it'd block the view, so put it on your fridge. And, and here's the thing. Start learning your neighbor's names. And as you know them, you can take a Sharpie or a dry erase marker and you can write their name on there. And once you know their name, here's the thing, you start praying for them. Now, you'd say, why are you putting such an emphasis on knowing their names? Because here's the thing, you can't build a friendship if you don't know their name. So the step one to building a friendship is get to know your neighbor's name and then spend time memorizing it. Because the last thing you want to do is like learn your neighbor's name and then call them the wrong name next time you see them. Like... Hey, Jeff, my name's Bob. Ah, that's weird. Okay, sorry about that. Like, get get their name. Get their name. Once you know their name, here's a couple ideas, right? How are you going to get to know their names? Maybe bake some bread. Bake some cookies. Maybe fire up your grill and invite them over. I mean, you you be you. You do you in this. But listen, figure out a way to go introduce yourself to your neighbors. And introduce yourself so they know your name and you get to know their name. And once you get to know their name, you can begin to develop a friendship. And here's how you develop friendships. Discover their stories. Discover their stories. Here's why discovering their stories is really important. Because every single one of us have weird neighbors. And if you don't have weird neighbors, it might be that you're the weird neighbor. But here's the thing. We need to discover people's stories because you might have that weird neighbor. You might have you might have the guy that's grouchy Greg or animal lover Ann or you might have that guy that gets really mad about stuff. But here's the question. What's their story? What, what's happened in their life? What are they like? Where have they been? How do I get to know them? You get to know them by knowing their story. See, I love this because in... John, Jesus, goes to a place that nobody wants to go to, and there's a well there, and they they get water from wells. So Jesus rolls up to the well, and there's a woman there. And Jesus, being fully God, all-knowing, he already knows this woman's story, but he wants to give her a chance for her to tell him her story. And I love this exchange. You can go home and read it. It happens to be called The Woman at the Well, if you want to look it up. And Jesus goes to the well, and he asks the woman, he says, could you draw me some water? He wants to learn her name. And she says, well, if you knew who I was, then you wouldn't ask me for water. What she's saying is, if you knew my story, you wouldn't even ask me to draw you water. And Jesus says, you're right, we don't know each other. Because if you knew me, you'd ask me for the living water. And see, Jesus has an introduction, and they begin to talk, and then Jesus gets to her story and says, hey, why, why, tell me about your husband. Why don't you get your husband? And she says, oh, I don't, I don't have one. And Jesus being Jesus goes, you're right, you don't. You've had five, and the one you have now is not your husband. She's like, how would he know that? See, the reason stories are important is because stories always lead us to the heart. See, casual conversation eventually becomes deep conversation. we begin to talk to people about little things, eventually it leads us to big things. And what's interesting is when Jesus leaves the woman from the well, she goes around town saying, I met a man and he told me everything I had done. It must be him. Do you think he could be the Christ. There's something really significant about getting to know people's stories. Because as you begin to develop friendships, start first by learning their names. As you begin to learn their stories, then you can do the last D, develop or determine next steps. Determine next steps. I want you to hear my heart on this. People are not projects. People are not like the bathroom you're trying to remodel. The answer isn't hit them with the nail harder, okay? One of the things that's happened in church world is we look at people like projects. That we can meet people and then we try to determine like, well, how much work is this going to take? People aren't projects. People are people. And one of the things we need to do with our time and our energy We need to offer people loving relationships. So as you get to know your neighbors, you get to know their names, you get to know their stories, what I mean by determine next steps is figure out ways to foster that relationship. Relationships don't just happen. Relationships are all about intentional steps. Guys, uh, that's why when you met the woman who is now your wife, you kept trying to ask her out on dates so she wouldn't forget about you. You're like, hey, if I can get her to go out with me again, and if I can get her out with me again, and then if some along the way we can make this official, and then I better propose to her before another guy does because I really, really like her. It's intentional. If you think about people who are your great friends, the reason they're your friends is because you intentionally spend time to them with them. And so think about next steps with the people you're learning. Think about next steps with your neighbor. Maybe offer to help them with a project. If your neighbor's out doing something in the front yard, maybe head out and go, hey, can I help you with that? Maybe a next step is just to provide something for them. Maybe go to their house and go, hey, we baked some cookies, we'd like to give you some. Hey, we made some bread, we'd like to give you some. Hey, we're firing up the grill, why don't you come over for dinner tonight? Maybe a next step is to party with them. Maybe you want to have some fun and invite them over. Go, hey, we got, we got some stuff going on. We're going to throw football. We're going football. You guys are invited. Come on over. Like, if you have a pool, the pool's open. If you're going to watch a game, watch a game together. But say, hey, why don't we, why don't we get together from time to time and be more than just neighbors? We could be friends. And then maybe even at some point, as you're in that relationship, you go, hey, you know what? Why don't you guys start coming to church with us? Maybe that'd be a next step. Instead of looking at people like a project, why don't we just look at them as people and offer them relationships? And in the course of those relationships as God gives us the opportunities we begin to invest in them. And as people know that we begin to love them and truly care for them, I think God does a work in them. In fact, here's what I think. I think our response to Jesus is to hear his word and do his So when Jesus says, love God who loves you, love the God who loves you passionately, you should love him in return passionately, I think we should do that. And if we don't, I think we should repent of our sin, admit to God that we got it wrong, and then we should reevaluate and make the changes we need to make to love him the way he wants to be loved. And when Jesus says, and also just like it, you should love your neighbor as yourself, I think we ought to respond to that. And so if we haven't, we need to, Repent of our sin and tell God we're sorry, we got it wrong. Ask for his help and make the changes and the adjustments we need to make so that we can begin to love God passionately and love our neighbors as ourselves. But here's the thing. God alone can draw people to himself. You and I can't save anybody. You and I can't make anybody bend the knee at the name of Jesus. That's not our responsibility. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Our job. Your job. My job is to love God like he loves us. And in return, just to be a really good neighbor. So I'd invite you to join me over the next couple weeks as we discover what Jesus means when he says, be a good neighbor. Let me pray for us. Thanks again for listening to this message from Redemption Church in Belvedere, Illinois, where we believe faith is a journey, not a guilt trip. Listen again next week, but in the meantime, visit us at redemption.cc.